Before we begin this week's episode of the show, here's a couple of words from this week's sponsor of the show, who I'm pleased to say is once again E-Squared. Now, do you live in London? Have you had a great Christmas and you're now thinking it's 2019, I want to get fit this year, but you're a bit worried that if you join a gym, you'll actually pay monthly, but you won't end up bothering going. Then why don't you try E-Squared? E-Squared's based in London and it lets you book the coolest and best fitness classes and gym sessions near to you with just a couple of clicks on a simple app. And E-Squared is a pay-as-you-go service, so there's no more feeling guilty for wasting your hard-earned cash on a monthly gym membership that you don't use. With E-Squared, you simply pay for the workouts that you attend. And that can be from a range of things. If you want to do something as gentle as yoga, fantastic. If you're a bit more active, why don't you try boxing? It even goes from things such as indoor cycling to high-intensity interval training. E-Squared aggregates everything that you want and more. You can try the E-Squared app now. It's downloadable for free on iOS and Android. And if you head there, this is the best part. If you head there and use the code POD20, that's P-O-D-2-0, you get yourselves £20 free credit for your first gym session. How's about that? Sounds pretty good or what, eh? E-Squared aggregates everything that you want and more. Don't take my advice for it. Go and try it for yourselves today. Hello guys and welcome to this week's episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, a show that examines and looks at the more obscure and unfamiliar cases, both solved ones and unsolved, from the shores of the UK and Ireland. I'm the host Paul, the creator of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. You guys are of course you guys and it means the world that you've joined me again this week and I must begin this episode with a bit of an explanation. Last week I promised that it would be the start of a multi-part episode uh, and we were going to Scotland. I had to change the episode for personal reasons so this week I've opted to bring one of the Patreon episodes available for everybody. I didn't have time to research and write up and record and edit a brand new case to the standard that I like to in the time frame that I had so I opted to do one of these Next week, we'll be back with the multi-part one and we'll be visiting Scotland. Okay, so just bear with me, guys, please. Uh, These things happen, unforeseen circumstances and all that. I hope you find this week's episode interesting. Some of you will have already heard it, of course, but then some of you won't. As usual, the episode may contain descriptions of crimes that some listeners may find disturbing or upsetting, so discretion, as always, is advised. With that in mind, Please join the True Crime Enthusiast as this week we look back at the case of the Telltale Teeth Marks. 
Teeth. The majority of mammals have them, apart from anteaters and pangolins, actually, I learned while I was researching this. That's a good pub trivia quiz fact for you. Some are sharp, some don't get cleaned, some are false even, but all can be used to bite and maim, leaving marks on skin and in flesh. These teeth marks, when examined, can be as unique to a single person as their fingerprints, and several savage crimes have been solved, and several brutal killers have been convicted on the basis of teeth marks that they've left at a crime scene. A notable case, of course, is that of American serial killer Ted Bundy, who was convicted in part based on a bite mark that he left on the body of one of his final victims that was matched in court to his crooked teeth. But there have been several instances in the UK also. One case that I covered back on the first series of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast looked at the crimes of Trevor Hardy, another killer who was quite fond of biting and one who was so aware that his teeth could be matched to marks left on the bodies of his victims, that he actually filed his own teeth down to points using the smuggled-in file whilst he was in custody. That's the Beast of Manchester episode for your information. So as this show looks at cases from the UK, I've pulled out what I hope you find are a fascinating couple more for this month's bonus Patreon episode. The first person convicted for murder in the UK on the basis of forensic odontology was the killer of a 15-year-old girl in the Scottish town of Bigger in South Lanarkshire. On the night of August 6, 1967, 15-year-old Linda Peacock had gone out with some friends of hers but hadn't arrived back home. It was unlike Linda, she was a well-behaved girl from a respectable family and naturally her parents were frantic with worry. They soon reported her as missing to police, and a search party comprised of her family, friends, neighbours and police scoured the area throughout the night, looking for her. Early the following morning, August the 7th, Linda's body was discovered lying under a bush in the graveyard of St Mary's Church. She'd been beaten and strangled, with her upper clothing torn open. An unsuccessful attempt had been made at sex, as a skirt was hitched up, a blouse and bra were in disarray, and a strange and unusual bruise was noticed on her right breast, which was later identified as a bite mark. Examining forensic scientists believed that the bite mark was excellent evidence that could be used to trace Linda's killer, and they called in the services of Dr Warren Harvey, an expert in forensic odontology from Glasgow University. Examining the bite mark, Dr Harvey's view was that the bite was very unique, particularly because both canine teeth that had caused the impression had holes or pits in them. Examination of the bite mark had also revealed a very unique unevenness in the perpetrator's teeth, so detectives began examining the teeth of men all over the local area. The killer was thought local because a witness came forward claiming to have seen a man and a young woman at the cemetery on the night of Linda's disappearance at about 10pm. As the girl appeared to know this man she was talking to, the witness had thought nothing more of the encounter, despite hearing a girl scream some 20 minutes after the sighting. So armed with this, plus the uniqueness of the killer's teeth, a systematic search for the murderer ensued, including all townspeople, and then boys at a local detention centre, Loningdale approved school. The inmates from here were asked to provide their dental impressions for comparison, which Dr Harvey later compared with a bite mark from Linda's body. When every male in the area had been seen and given impressions of their teeth, 
Dr. Harvey had managed to narrow the search down to just five suspects in a painstaking analysis. The eminent pathologist Dr. Keith Simpson, his memoirs are a fantastic, fascinating read by the way if you ever get the chance to get his book. Dr. Simpson then joined the team to help out with these comparisons. Between Harvey and Simpson, they managed to identify the creator of the bite mark, a 17-year-old youth from the detention centre named Gordon Hay, who was one of the five suspects. Hay was a young man who had several issues with authority figures, and one who had been detained for being caught breaking into a factory. Upon examination of his dental impression, his canine teeth were revealed to have pits in them caused by a disorder known as hypocalcination. These pits matched those on the mark on Linda's breast. Gordon Hay denied being the killer and had a very strong alibi. On that night, he was in bed in his dorm at the school. Now, while Loningdale wasn't a locked, secure unit, it was staffed at all times. As far as the school's records were concerned, that was exactly where Gordon Hay was that night, in his bed. But according to three other Loningdale boys who were spoken to, Hay had slipped out of school on the night Linda was killed. Now, this was a regular practice. Many boys used to slip out of the school at night through the gymnasium to meet local girls, who'd often wait in the wooded grounds, giving owl hoot signals to draw the boys' attention. Gordon Hay was one of these boys. Blood was also found on his clothing that matched Linda's blood group, and he was charged with the murder of Linda Peacock. At his trial on February the 26th, 1968, at the High Court in Edinburgh, the Crown claimed that Hay had slipped out of the school, met Linda, and tried to have sex with her. When the young girl had refused, he lost his temper, battered her savagely with a boat hook that he'd stolen from another boy earlier, and strangled her with a cord. Police had found parts of the cord and the hook, which had both been found in Hay's possession, plus they'd found blood on his clothing, but they needed more, and it all came down to the bite mark matching the impression of Hay's teeth. Hayes' defence lawyers knew the significance of this and tried to have the presiding judge, Lord Grant, disallow the evidence, not on the strength that it was unscientific, but that the warrant used to take impressions of Gordon Hayes' teeth wasn't legal. If they'd won their debate, Hay could have walked free. However, they lost their argument and the findings of Drs Simpson and Harvey was heard as evidence. Dr Keith Simpson, pathologist for the Home Office, Charlie Big Bananas in giving evidence, listed one by one the unique identifying characteristics that matched Gordon Hayes' teeth to the bite imprint left on Linda's body. Impressed by Simpson's commanding testimony capping off this wealth of evidence, this convinced the jury and Gordon Hay was found unanimously guilty of the murder of Linda Peacock. As a minor he couldn't receive a life sentence, so instead he was detained at Her Majesty's pleasure. He also had the distinction of being the first person in the UK to be convicted by forensic dentistry. And just two years later, when another savage killing occurred, this time in the city of Manchester, forensic dentistry would again play a crucial role in catching a brutal killer. Not once, but twice. Back in 1970, Friday nights could be extremely rowdy along Kingsway in the South Manchester suburb of Burnage, 
where 72-year-old Mrs Gwen Hughes lived in a council house, number 285 Kingsway. Mrs Hughes was used to hearing the sounds of drunken rows, shouting and crying outside, the standard fear that's still the result of a night out on the lash today. So when Mrs Hughes was disturbed in the early hours of Saturday, November the 27th, 1970, by a commotion outside, she thought little of it and went back to sleep. In fact, because she'd been so disturbed through the night, she allowed herself a lie-in that Saturday morning and didn't get up until 9am. About an hour or so later, Mrs Hughes had tidied up, cleaned out the remains of the previous night's coal fire and had the cold ashes from the hearth in a bucket ready to place into the dustbin outside. She opened a kitchen door and walked along the garden path that had only been tarmacked the day before and was almost at a dustbin when a sight on the ground made her stop dead in her tracks. Peeking out from around the corner of her house was a long shock of red hair, and as Mrs Hughes looked nervously further around the corner, she saw a sight that made her cry for help. Lying sprawled on the ground, naked except for some clothing that covered her face, was the lifeless body of a young woman. A neighbour, hearing the elderly woman's cries for help, was soon at her side, and seeing the sight that had made Mrs Hughes scream, had soon ushered her into the house and contacted police. When police arrived, Detective Chief Inspector Joseph Wright took in the scene. Immediately apparent was a sizeable gap in the hedge that separated Mrs Hughes' garden from the alleyway that bordered it. Soil in a patch of the garden had been disturbed, and there were obvious drag marks too, that led along the tarmac path to the front garden of the property, and also to the back garden, which was now where the body lay. On the front lawn, detectives found a multitude of discarded items. There was a pair of women's tights, some clothing bundled together including a pair of knickers, and a black leather glove. When the search was extended to the bordering alleyway, Detective Constable Jack Butler spotted the discarded remains of a half-eaten meat pie and its white cardboard container. A scrap of torn clothing was also caught on top of the hedge, but it was in Mrs Hughes's flower bed that the most interesting item and potential clue was found. A small printed card lay in the flower bed, headed City of Manchester Welfare Department. In Biro, it bore the name Miss Burroughs. The dead woman lay on her back, arms outstretched in a classic crucifix position, and had very visible marks covering her breasts, which proved to be bite marks on closer inspection. There was also what appeared to be the imprint of a boot or shoe on her chest, and her dress had been pulled up and placed over her head, hiding her features. A glove worn on her left hand matched the leather one found on the front lawn. When the clothing covering the woman's head was removed, Severe visible wounds were revealed that were to prove the obvious cause of her death, but when the body came to be removed, three scraps of paper were found beneath it that were to give police more potential leads. One was a pink sales receipt, the second was a scrap of paper inscribed with Mam's telephone number, which when the number was called was revealed to be a factory premises that employed a large number of women. The third scrap of paper was again a telephone number, some digits preceding the caption, Terry's telephone number. 
A detective called this number, but there was no reply. Mrs Hughes told detectives that she'd gone to bed about 11.45pm the previous evening, only to be woken in the early hours of what she thought was about 1.30am by noises outside. She got up and went to her bedroom window to look outside, looking into a garden further up Kingsway, but she couldn't see anything in the darkness. She did hear a series of noises that sounded like thuds, but then they stopped, and as she couldn't see anything further, and perhaps a little annoyed, perhaps even a little bit scared, she went back to her bed. When her neighbours were spoken to, however, they claimed that they'd heard muffled screams that Friday evening, but about the same time that Mrs Hughes had gone to bed. None of them reported hearing any thuds, and as screams and shouts were quite commonplace on a Friday evening in a rowdy area, they put it down to a couple messing about or rowing, or an argument further down the road. The gap in the hedge had been freshly made and had been pushed through from the alleyway, suggesting that this was where the young woman had initially been attacked. The flower bed where the card was found displayed the imprint of the heel of a boot or a shoe, and close examination revealed a small, flat, metal fingering that was lying in the soil. When the clothes on the front lawn were examined, it was found bizarrely that the young woman had been wearing not one, but three pairs of knickers. No purse or handbag was found at the scene, so police could not be certain who the young woman was. Performing the autopsy, Home Office pathologist Dr John Benstead found that the woman had been killed in a frenzied attack. Some of the severe head injuries that she'd received might have been caused by a man's boot or shoe, while others appeared to have been inflicted by a fist. The ten or more blows had been savage enough to cause multiple skull fractures, leading to death from shock and massive cerebral hemorrhage. The bare right hand of the woman was damaged and the middle finger was found to have been fractured. Her vagina was severely bruised where she'd been raped and several cuts and large traces of tarmac on her back and legs indicated that she'd been dragged along the ground so she had not been attacked in the position that she was found in. Four distinct bite marks were found on the woman, one on her cheek, one on her left breast and two on her right. Due to the condition of the body temperature and the degree of rigor mortis that had set in, Dr Benstead believed that she'd been killed sometime between midnight and 2am. Tragically, the young woman was seven months pregnant too. Missing persons reports from the area were checked, but these drew a blank. No one had been reported missing of the woman's description. Not yet, anyway. So the obvious assumption to police was that the woman who'd been killed was this Miss Burroughs, the name on the City of Manchester Welfare Department card that had been found in the flower bed. But this wasn't the case. That Miss Burroughs was traced and found to be alive and well. It turned out that the card was just one of many that she handed out to people in the course of her work as a welfare officer. So in an effort to establish just who the dead woman was, because she was obviously somebody's wife, daughter or mother, Detective Chief Superintendent Charles Horan, the head of Manchester and Salford CID, immediately issued an appeal for information based on the woman's description. He described her as being about 25 years of age, 
five feet six inches tall with dark red hair and in an advanced state of pregnancy. An artist's impression of the woman's face was made following the autopsy and was enlarged so that it could be attached to the side of a mobile police van which was set up near to the crime scene as a makeshift incident room separate from the main hub of the inquiry which was being run from a suite of rooms at Manchester's Longsight police station. Within a short time of the van with the artist's impression being parked there, that Saturday afternoon, the young woman had been identified. The woman who came forward to provide the identity was a grandmother, who detectives were to discover was the recipient of the welfare card that had been found at the scene. She told police that a member of her household, her 22-year-old granddaughter Linda Stewart, hadn't come home following a night out the previous evening. She'd gone out the night before with a girlfriend of hers, Jennifer Earle, and had failed to return home. Shortly afterwards, it was sadly confirmed that the young woman was indeed Linda Stewart, and police went to speak to her boyfriend, a decent guy and the father of her unborn child. He was understandably devastated, and of course, as is standard in any police investigation, with such a connection to the victim, he was at first considered as the prime person of interest. But it was quickly established that Linda's boyfriend had been on a pub crawl that Friday with his workmates, a massive sesh that had begun at lunchtime that Friday and had lasted until about 2am the Saturday morning. At the time Linda was believed to have been killed, he was in a nightclub with his friends, who all corroborated this. He was that drunk that one of them had taken him home and placed him in bed. Having a solid alibi for the previous day and evening, he was fast ruled out as a suspect. Linda lived with her widowed mother, her grandmother, her married brother and his wife and baby, two younger sisters and two younger brothers, in a council house in Foxwood Gardens, less than a mile from the back garden on Kingsway where her body was found. She was described as being a quiet girl who'd recently quit her job as a shop assistant due to her pregnancy and now spent much of her time looking after her brother's two-year-old daughter. At 8.30pm the previous evening, Linda had called for a girlfriend of hers, Jennifer Earle, who also lived in Burnage, and they'd gone out together to have a few drinks and a dance about an hour later. Linda's friend Jennifer was traced and spoken to, and in between tears and shock over her friend, she told police that their porter call had been the Princess Hotel in nearby Fallowfield, where they each drank two pints of lager and had stayed there until last orders were called at 11pm. When they left, the last bus of the evening had gone, so they decided to walk home. By about 11.30pm they'd reached Kingsway, where the two girls used a public toilet. When they came out of the toilet, Jennifer told detectives that they were eyed up by a young man who'd passed them, then made a point of crossing the road and had then turned back to stare at them. Shortly after this, the girls reached a point where they had to part to make their separate ways home to their respective houses and after saying goodnight to each other about 11.40pm, Jennifer noticed that the young man started to walk behind Linda as she walked off. He was described as being younger than the pair, about 20 years of age, very well dressed, wearing a beige suit and longish style overcoat with a white fur collar. Jennifer went further to describe him as being very good looking and having blonde hair with long sideburns. 
as Linda's shoes and handbag were missing, they'd not been discovered through a thorough search of the crime scene and surrounding areas. Jennifer described them in detail, a pair of black patent leather, thick block-heeled shoes with a gold buckle, and black handbag with gold clasp. Police subsequently issued this description of the items to the media. Throughout the following day, as a team of detectives investigating Linda's murder began scrutinising the list of Manchester's convicted and suspected sex offenders to begin to build a possible suspect list, other members of the squad questioned people living on the Kingsway and staff and customers at the Princess Hotel. Two sightings had police attention immediately. One witness came forward to say that he'd seen a grey mini-traveller vehicle parked on the Kingsway, directly outside from Mrs Hughes's house on the corner of Kingsway and Ferndale Gardens, and at about 12.55am that Saturday morning. There was a couple inside the vehicle, and the witness claimed that they appeared to have been arguing before they drove off. Another witness spoken to, a motorist who was driving through the area on that Friday evening, said that he was travelling down the Kingsway at about 11.50pm when he had to swerve his car as he narrowly avoided a young man who was dragging a girl across the road. The motorist described the man as being about 5 feet 7 inches tall, blonde-haired and wearing a fawn raincoat. Both of these were crucial sightings as the former could have been Linda and a killer whilst the latter tied in with the description of the man given as following Linda by the last person to have seen her alive, her friend Jennifer that she'd been out with that evening. Detective Chief Superintendent Horan told the press, We are very anxious to trace the couple in the car. It was parked only 15 yards from where the body was found, and we cannot rule out that the woman in the car was Miss Stewart. Now the following day, the driver of the mini-traveller came forward following this appeal. The woman in the car had been his girlfriend who he'd been rowing with at the time and had driven her home following this row where he'd then stayed. His girlfriend confirmed this and neither claimed to have heard or seen anything although they were probably too busy rowing to notice anything. As a result, the mini driver was ruled out of the inquiry. In their bid to find Linda's still missing shoes and handbag which had to be somewhere Police officers accompanied the council's refuse collectors when they began their collection rounds on the Monday following the murder, making sure to check the contents of each and every refuse bin in the area before it was taken away. Now that's a pretty grim sounding job I'm sure you'll agree. It's certainly one that I couldn't bear doing as I'm petrified, absolutely petrified of rats. I'd freak out like you wouldn't believe doing something like that. So it's a good job that these were hardened coppers doing this, and good job it proved not to be a long search really. In a house about 200 yards from the crime scene, Detective Constable Norman Croston opened what felt like his umpteenth bin of the day, when staring back at him from the top of the bin was a single woman's black patent leather gold buckle shoe, the left one, and a series of letters and papers that bore the name Linda Stewart. There were some photographs in there too, and one of the photographs was of Linda. Shortly afterwards, more of Linda's belongings, including an empty handbag and chain bracelet, were found in another bin a hundred yards away from the first discovery. This convinced police that they were looking for a local man. The missing shoes had made them consider 
that perhaps Linda had been in a car at some point, but the primary person of interest, the blonde man, had been seen on foot. It now seemed likely that, with the discovery of Linda's belongings in bins in the area, that the killer had disposed of them whilst fleeing on foot. A killer with a car doesn't stop every hundred or so yards to dump a different item from the crime scene, but a local person on his way out of the area, who knows the area very well, certainly would do. Superintendent Horan now decided to make these discoveries public, in the hope that this would bring more witnesses forward or crucial sightings, but also in the hope that the publicity of the discoveries would scare the killer into either giving himself away or perhaps coming forward and confessing. The press were told of all of the discoveries at a conference on the Tuesday following Linda's death, but also of the distinct metal finger ring that had been discovered and was thought to have been lost by the killer during the murder. It was hoped that it was distinctive enough that someone could identify its owner. Charles Horan would have made an absolutely fantastic spin doctor, I think. He had a command of speaking to the press and his team. His appeals were clear and concise, but put in such a way that they could lift any flagging morale and were expertly conveyed that they placed the maximum psychological pressure on the killer. If the killer lived in the local area, he would have been unable to avoid the mass publicity and would have squirmed when he read the list of points of appeal that police had, so he knew just how close to him they were getting. Meanwhile, the ring found in the flower bed had been sent to the metallurgical department of Manchester University for examination by experts there, and it was found to have been crafted by stainless steel, apparently made by a skilled worker using a factory machine. The examining expert, Dr Musin Nazir, a metallurgist, could go one better than this. Not only could he say with certainty that the steel had been produced in Yorkshire, but he was even able to name the supplier. He also said that an Allen bolt had been used in the ring's manufacture, and by a week after the murder, Friday the 3rd of December, detectives were making a trawl around local engineering firms where these types of bolts were used. Now an interesting pointer I found when I was researching this episode was that the team who were doing these rounds was headed by Detective Inspector Jack Ridgway of Manchester CID, a name that will be familiar to anyone who's well read in the Yorkshire Ripper case, because nearly a decade later he was to oversee another trawl around engineering firms in connection with a £5 note that should have caught Peter Sutcliffe. So a couple of days after this trawl had started, detectives found themselves at the premises of Reynold Engineering, a chain gear and coupling manufacturing works within the square mile of premises around Burnage, where Horan had concentrated the hunt. This is the latest of several premises that police had visited, armed with a standard questionnaire, where were you on the night in question, etc, etc. But whilst they were here, a note was handed to him that had just been found in the locker of one of the apprentice workers there. It had been written on the rear of one of the firm's job order cards, and it read as follows. Andy, I want you to tell the firm to send my wages home to my parents. I think I killed that girl, but I'm not sure. But it's my ring they found, so it must be me. Tell the cops not to look for me, because I will kill myself. Ron. The Ron in question was Ronald Bennell, 
an 18-year-old apprentice fitter at the firm who lived with his parents and four siblings in Tatton Close in Cheadle Home, about three miles away from Burnage. Benel had left the factory earlier that morning and a check revealed that he wasn't at home in Tatton Close, so detectives went to the home of his 16-year-old girlfriend who lived in the Manchester suburb of Bench Hill. When they knocked on her door and she opened it, just behind her they saw Benel trying to make a run for it through the kitchen, but pushing past her, detectives pursued him and he was caught and arrested after a brief scuffle. A steel ring found on one of his girlfriend's fingers that he claimed he'd made and gave to her was identical to the one found at the scene of Linda Stewart's murder. When questioned by Detective Chief Superintendent Horan, Benl at first said he could remember nothing at all from the night of the murder. He did go on to admit attending an apprentice's dance in Selneck, which is a club in the Burnage area of Slade Lane, after which he'd left the dance with a fellow apprentice and his wife. They'd visited a fish and chip shop afterwards, where Benel had bought a meat pie and chips, and had then walked home alone along Kingsway. Asked for his shoes, he took them off and was told by police that they were a match to the ones which had left a heel print at the crime scene. Benel replied that he didn't recall going into any garden that evening. He then admitted writing the note which had been found at his workplace and handed to police, and when questioned further, he recalled walking behind two young women near Kingsway, who split up near a road at the top of it. He was walking in the same direction as one of them, and he remembered catching up and saying, Hello love to one of them during his walk. It was Linda Stewart, a complete stranger to him, and one who told him to fuck off when he did so. Bennell claimed that he could not control his temper following this, and he'd followed her into an alleyway, where he pushed her hard through a hedge into a garden, losing his metal finger ring as he'd done so, and dropping the meat pie that he'd been eating. He had climbed through and then she started shouting and struggling, which you would of course do if a stranger threw you through a hedge, wouldn't you? And so Benel's solution to this was to grab her around the throat, squeezing until she went quiet. Then he dragged her along the tarmac path, feet first to the front lawn, where he pulled off her knickers and tights, pushed up the rest of her clothing, and had raped her, biting her face and breasts as he did so. She then began talking and moaning, so he punched her several times in the face and kicked her, telling her to shut up. After he had then dragged the now quiet girl back along the path, Benel suddenly realised that the woman he'd just raped and beaten was actually dead. So in a panic, he claimed he'd picked up the nearest things that belonged to her that he could find, including her shoes and handbag, and fled back through the hole in the hedge that he'd made. He'd even stepped on Linda's body in his haste to flee. As he walked back towards his home in Cheadle, taking a route through some gardens at first, he dumped Linda's left shoe in a handbag in various bins nearby, and the other shoe he threw into the River Mersey. Arriving home, he explained off his blood-spattered and tarred clothing by telling his concerned parents that he'd intervened in a fight that had occurred at the apprentice's dance, had stopped it, and had been thanked for doing so by the dance hall manager. Police learned that on the Monday following the murder, when it was across all of the newspapers, one of his fellow apprentices had remarked on the similarity between Benel 
and the description of the killer that had been published in the newspapers. Another one had picked up the detail of the crafted steel finger ring that had been found at the scene, and had even asked Bennell if the ring found at the crime scene was his, to which Bennell claimed that it wasn't and he'd given his to his sister. The pressure, as was designed by Horan, had built and built at Bennell all week, until he'd finally learned that his interview would be imminent as police were doing the rounds of engineering firms, and he'd done a runner to his girlfriend's house. To confirm Bennell's confession and recollections, police then looked at the remains of the meat pie that had been found in the alleyway. No remains of meat pie had been found in Linda's stomach at the post-mortem, so it most likely had to have been dropped by her killer. As it was half-eaten, it had teeth marks still on the crust, so a forensic odontologist took an impression of Bennell's teeth. There's a remarkable picture available of Bennell having the impression and examination taken that I shall share up, and a comparison was made between this cast and the bite marks from Linda's body and those on the meat pie. The cast was found to be a perfect match to both. Forensic scientists were also able to establish that fibres found on Linda's skin and clothing upon examination were found to have come unquestionably from the jacket and trousers that Benl had been wearing on that Friday evening. Blood on his clothing was found to match Linda's blood group, which was a different group from his, and tar staining was found on the same clothes and in his pockets. Following this, Ronald Bennell was charged with the rape and murder of Linda Stewart and was remanded in custody on December 15th, 1970, awaiting trial. His remand period was short for less than four months after the crime at Manchester Crown Court on the 1st of March, 1971. Bennell admitted the rape and murder of Linda Stewart. He was given the standard life sentence but was to serve just 12 years of this before being released in 1983. And then six years later, another woman was found murdered, again raped, again viciously beaten, and this time also mutilated with a sharp instrument, this time in Bramall, near Stockport. On Thursday, June the 15th, 1989, 42-year-old mother of three, Pamela Noon, a nurse who'd been out for the day shopping. She'd left her home in the Linney Road area of Bramall that morning, caught the bus to go shopping, and had then visited her parents who lived nearby in Henley Avenue. After having lunch with her folks, at 1.30pm she caught a bus from here to the junction of Lady Bridge Road and Tenement Lane, where she began walking towards her home up Tenement Lane, a rough track which was known in the locality as Piggy Lane, and was about a mile from her home, which was habitual for Pamela to do, as it was the easiest place that the bus could drop her off. A Google map shows Tenement Lane to be a lengthy and lonely looking place, even still today, although the topography may have changed plenty over the last 30 years. By 3.20pm, Pamela's three sons, Alex, Robert and Adam, left their school, expecting her to meet them outside the gates as she usually did but she wasn't there. They waited for a period of time for her, but she still didn't arrive, and so they made their own way home. There was no one at home when they arrived, their father William being away on a business trip, 
so they telephoned their grandmother to see if their mum was there, which of course she wasn't, and told their grandparents that their mother had failed to turn up to meet them at school. The eldest son, Alex, made the younger two comfortable in front of the television, and then decided to head out on his bike to look for her, worried that she may have had an accident. Guessing the route that his mother would have taken, because as I said it was habitual for her, he left the noon household in Linney Road and began cycling down Tenement Lane, thinking that any second he may meet his mum walking back up. He didn't, but he did meet his grandmother, who decided to do the same thing, and now joined him in his search. Shortly after this, they discovered a creamy brown coloured slip-on shoe on the path, and nearby at the foot of some thick bushes was a Granny Smith apple, the kind that the noon boys favoured and that their mother always bought for them. Feeling instinctively that something was dreadfully wrong, Alex began searching the area. Pushing through some bushes behind where he'd found the apple, Alex came across a sight that no person should ever see, and one that must surely still haunt him to this day. In a remote clearing behind the bushes, he found the lifeless body of his mother Pamela. Her clothing had been removed, and her body was heavily bloodstained and battered. Pamela's father had actually by that time reported her as a missing person to police, and so when a distraught Alex and Pamela's mother raised the alarm, police were soon at the scene. When they arrived, they could fully take in the horror of what had happened, and everyone's hearts went out to Alex. Imagine finding your mum like that. How would you even begin to come to terms with such a sight? Pamela lay on her back with her arms outstretched. All of her clothing had been removed, leaving her body naked. She had several visible head wounds and several cut and slash marks where her body had been mutilated with a sharp instrument. The contents of Pamela's shopping bags lay strewn around where the body lay, interspersed with the contents of her handbag. Her purse, containing about £100 in cash, was missing, taken by a killer. There was one other detail apparent even from a cursory look at the body. Pamela's killer had severely bitten her breasts. There were perfect bite marks all over them. The autopsy was to reveal that Pamela had been savagely attacked, waylaid with a brick on the path, and then dragged through the bushes to the clearing, where she was savagely raped, viciously beaten, and then battered to death with the blood-stained house brick. Marks on her fingernails showed that Pamela had put up a fight against her killer and may have scratched or bitten him before being battered senseless with the brick. Traces of the killer's semen were also found on the body and with the magic of DNA profiling now a very real investigative tool, with these samples any suspect could easily be eliminated from the inquiry. A full-scale murder inquiry was launched immediately and as news of the murder spread through the Bramall community, a sense of fear hung over the area. It was believed that Pamela had been attacked at about 1.45pm. This would account for the bus dropping her off about 1.35pm, and the ten minutes it would have taken for her to walk the distance up Tenement Lane to where her body was found. It appeared to be predominantly a sex crime, and that the theft of the purse had been taken as an afterthought. It wasn't a robber who'd stayed to rape. Police felt they were looking for a savage sex maniac. 
house-to-house inquiries in the area strengthened this when they revealed no less than 14 reports from women who claimed that a man had exposed himself to them on Tenement Lane in the recent past. Had Pamela's murder started at this, but then gone a massive step further. Detective Superintendent Collinson thought this was likely. He told reporters, This, I am sure, was an act which went dreadfully wrong. The killer probably intended to touch the woman up and expose himself to her, or to snatch her handbag. Dreadfully wrong is a bit of a bloody understatement there, Norm. Extracts from Alex's moving description of finding his mother's body were later published in the press in the decision taken by the officer who was to lead the hunt for Pamela's killer, Detective Superintendent Norman Collinson. It wasn't a decision taken lightly, and it was certainly not done to sensationalise the crime or with any callous disregard for the devastated Noon family. Rather, it was taken in the hope that the tragic and honest words of the young man might strike a chord with the killer and their guilty conscience may make them come forward. One such quote from it is as follows. First, I found a creamy brown shoe. It was about a size 5, a slip-on, and I recognised it as the same as my mum's. I had an awful feeling that it was my mum's. I knew it was hers straight away. I recognised her watch. Poor lad, that's unimaginable, isn't it? Now this didn't strike a chord with the killer, but he was caught soon afterwards as it was. As the inquiry had begun, checks were made against a list of all known local sex offenders and those with a history of violent offending, and a team of detectives set to work looking on those in the immediate area as the obvious primary persons of interest. One of the doors that they went to very early on in the inquiry was a quiet, unassuming house in Walnut Tree Road in Stockport, just two miles away from the murder scene. The occupant of the house was 36-year-old Ronald Bennell. He'd returned to the area following his release from prison six years before for the murder of Linda Stewart. Now a married father of two young children, Bennell told detectives that he'd been doing a labouring job in Bramall's Newquay Drive on the day of the murder, a distance of some three miles from Tenement Lane. He claimed that at what was perceived to be the time of the attack, about 1.45pm, he'd ridden his moped to an off-licence in Bramall Lane, where he'd bought some lunch consisting of a drink and some crisps, and had stopped nearby to have a smoke after doing so. He claimed that he'd then gone straight home to Walnut Tree Road after doing this, an entire trip that had taken about 45 minutes, and that he was home no later than 2.30pm that afternoon. He claimed that he'd never seen Pamela Noon at all, and that he'd been nowhere near Tenement Lane that day. Detectives noticed that he seemed nervous when questioned, however, and his name was circled with the remark, not happy about, written in red next to it. He was one of several people questioned, however, that were added to this list. But when detectives looked again at Ronald Bennell, he seemed to be the most promising suspect that they had. His crime from 19 years before had all of the hallmarks of Pamela's killing, a woman alone, attacked, raped and battered. And both of the bodies had been bitten.
With Benel very much now the prime suspect in Pamela's murder, he was again visited by detectives and was arrested on suspicion of the crime and in custody had a sample of his DNA taken for comparison against the semen sample from Pamela's killer. He also had his teeth examined again and an impression made. Before long, the impression of Benel's teeth had been matched perfectly to the bite marks found on Pamela and to seal it, the DNA sample from Benel came back after being compared to that of Pamela's killer. The DNA test found that the chances of Benel not being the man who had raped and murdered Pamela were 150 million to one against. Following this, in early July 1989, Ronald Benel was charged with the rape and murder of Pamela Noon and was committed to stand trial at Manchester Crown Court in March 1990. Benel completely denied everything, even faced with the overwhelming evidence against him. Some people, you just couldn't make that up, could you really? Whilst Benel was on remand, he was at first visited regularly by his wife, but when she was informed of the DNA results, she went to see him in Strangeways Prison in Manchester, where he was being held on remand. She sat across from him in the visitor's area, and told him not only that police had told her that Benel's DNA sample had matched that taken from the killer of Pamela Noon, but that the bite marks found on her body had also perfectly matched his teeth. They had also told her, if that wasn't shocking enough to her, that this was the second sex killing that Benel had committed. So not only had he not told her the wealth of evidence that police had against him, he'd neglected to tell her that before they met, He'd served 13 years of a life sentence for another savage sex murder, that of a heavily pregnant woman. How do you even start to come to terms with your partner, your husband, having a hidden part of his life like that? How do you keep something like that to yourself as well? How hard-faced do you have to be? So on the back of this, his devastated wife told him a few home truths. She told Benel that she'd given him the benefit of the doubt about his innocence, but she had all along suspected his guilt in the crime after he'd been arrested. Now I get the feeling it wasn't an idyllic kind of marriage that, don't you? Following her chat with police, she now hoped that he was found guilty, which she claimed would be a sure thing. She hoped he died in prison for his crimes, and that she or their children would never, ever see him again. She then got up, turned around and walked out of the visiting area, never once looking back. That was the last time that Benel ever saw her. But he was never to face justice for the rape and murder of Pamela Noon, because just five days after this visit, on January the 25th, 1990, Ronald Benel made a noose from his bedsheet in his cell at Strangeways Prison and took his own life hanging himself. He was never to explain what had driven him to rape and murder Pamela, and his shattered family were left with the pain that although a killer was dead, it was before justice had been served for her. Few other people shed any tears for Benel, his children maybe for a brief period of time, although they are undoubtedly better off without a brutal sex killer for a father, and the air was that slight bit cleaner now, wasn't it? 
So I have no sympathy whatsoever for Benel taking his own life. I know that for many people they get to a certain dark and unimaginable place out of desperation, and that ending it all seems the only option available to them. It devastated the family of a close friend of mine not so long ago, and I have great empathy. My heart really goes out to these people who feel that this is their only way out. But I can't muster any for a murdering sex maniac who does the same thing, because I do not feel that it wasn't that Benel couldn't live with his crimes and the lives that he destroyed as a result of them. It was the harsh realisation from his wife's words, I believe, that caused him to do this. His own inability to deal with his own actions causing his own loss. What an absolute piece of shit. An evil must run in the Bennell family name, because a cousin of Ronald Bennell's is the notorious paedophile Barry Bennell, the former youth football coach who worked with teams such as Crew Alexandra, Stoke City, Leeds United and Manchester City. Now you'll be glad to hear that this one did face justice for his crimes. Barry Bennell had already served prison terms totaling many years, both in the UK and the United States, for child sex abuse, before being found guilty of historical child sex offences in the UK in February 2018, which he was given a 31-year prison sentence for. This individual's crimes were so horrendous and far-reaching that the ripple effect was still being felt by those he had abused many years later and had led to several people taking their own lives in a result unable to overcome the horrors inflicted upon him. I hope that Barry Bennell goes and joins his cousin Ron, wherever he may be. I also do not think that Ronald Bennell has limited himself to two killings. At age 18 he was obviously harbouring enough dark and violent sexual thoughts to rape and batter to death a pregnant woman. Then six years after being released, he does near enough the exact same thing. 20 years between crimes. What had he been doing for the 6 years that he was free before he killed Pamela Noon? Because a person who's got that much violence in them, I don't think they could keep it in check. It's got to manifest itself somewhere, don't you agree? It's likely that a study of Bennell's movements when he was released, places he's lived and worked, could tie him to the vicinity of other similar crimes. I'd bet a month's wages on him having done others. This is a person prone to violence. Even his own wife suspected him of being the killer. Isn't that quite telling? His DNA sample may not have been stored, and with him being dead for nearly 30 years now, there's no reason that it would be. He certainly died before the onset of the National DNA Database. But today the possibility exists that a familial DNA match to samples that have been retained from other unsolved crimes may yet one day bring the name Ronald Bennell back to the public conscious again. I certainly wouldn't be surprised if it did. So evil indeed this month. Like, well, like there's ever a month where the subject isn't evil indeed. I mean, come on. This was a very unfamiliar case to me that I came across. I found it an absolutely fascinating one. And I hope that you too have enjoyed it as a bonus episode of the show. If you too listen, of course. Exclusive, you very kind Patreon supporters only. Unless, of course, it's the bonus case that's voted for on the show's second birthday next year. As I'm going to do the same thing that I did this year when that birthday comes and release the most voted for Patreon episode as a birthday thank you from the show to everybody. 
Please, by all means, get in touch if you'd like to discuss the cases featured here today, though. I'm all ears. The regular True Crime Enthusiast podcast is still a course out on True Crime Thursdays with a continuing Series 3, where I hope you can catch me then also. All that remains is for me to say this is Paul, the True Crime Enthusiast, wishing you all well and safe times, and I shall speak to you soon. Take care, guys. Thanks for joining me, and goodbye for now.